Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. I moved to California from Maryland in 1977. I was four years old, and my paternal grandparents invited me and my parents to live with them on a multi-acre plot in San Diego County. Their house was hand-built by my grandpa and his father-in-law, my great-grandpa, immediately after World War II. For several years, there was no electricity or indoor plumbing, and my father and his two younger brothers grew up as country folk until the city arrived in a grid of nearby streets during their adolescence. Our arrival in California followed a cross-country drive, my dad's GTO pulling my mom's Vega, and we moved into a back bedroom of my grandparents' house that adjoined an in-ground pool covered by a hydroponic garden. There were wide open spaces on all sides of the house, save for the south side, which is where my great-grandpa had built my great-grandma a house so they could supervise my grandparents and help out since my grandpa and great-grandpa plied their trade in the city of San Diego, often an overnight trip due to bad roads that didn't improve much until the Federal Highways Act of 1956. During our first year in California, my grandpa, a general contractor, and my two uncles, contractors in training, built four spec houses on one-acre lots that defined the family compound and six houses that, from the sky, looked like a very long S. My aunt and uncle's house faced the paved road. They gave us all a proper street address, and this meant that their house was the only one capable of receiving more utilities than simple copper wire for telephone service or a propane tank for hot water and cooking gas. The difference between these conveniences was mostly lost on me, so long as the zenith worked in the living room, but eventually the encroachment of modernity moved up the street. As young, upwardly mobile professionals without any children, my aunt and uncle had ambitious appetites that my very existence precluded my parents from indulging. This meant trips to faraway places, long hours spent in their workspaces, and unusual foods from my standpoint as a little boy attuned to bologna and spaghetti. Dinner at their house might involve vegetables or fondue, neither of which appealed to me until I became the age they were then. My aunt and uncle were also the earliest known subscribers to HBO I'd ever known because a line of coaxial cable was buried along the culvert in front of their house. In fact, it was through them that I learned there was a way to watch big screen entertainment on a TV, and I marveled at the very idea that a person could watch fairly recent movies at home over and over again. This was the early 1980s when network television offered movies of the week, or else a person spent a small fortune to buy a video cassette recorder, which was originally meant to time shift and record TV, not play movies from the sell-through market. One Saturday night, I was dropped off with my brother at my aunt and uncle's house so my parents could go on a date night. We had dinner and mumbled our way through whatever passed for conversation when they mentioned that Star Wars was playing on TV. <laughs> To prove the good news, they gave me the monthly program guide where I could read the order of every day's hourly schedule the whole month through, and I was flabbergasted. My brother was, no doubt, occupying them with toddler requirements, and that left me free to watch Star Wars on HBO in a loop for hours until the family-friendly programming ended. It was bliss. I recited lines of dialogue, anticipated action sequences, and I recalled the main cast by name, not by reading the credits, but from memory because I so loved Lucasfilm. When it grew late, 
My aunt asked me to lie down with my brother to help him fall asleep. I agreed, but the thought that troubled me as I listened to him breathe heavily and drift into his rest was the fact that the program guide next listed Conan the Barbarian, John Milius, 1982, now that the safe harbor period was over. I wanted to see Conan the Barbarian quite badly, based solely on the illustrated poster art by Renato Cassaro, so I snuck out from my brother's side and crawled to a pony wall that divided up the family room from the living room, and from which point I could kneel behind a houseplant to peek at the TV. What I saw was a fur-wearing father talking to his son, cavalry attacking a village, and that same father getting chewed to death by dogs. It was scary and exciting, and I couldn't believe my luck in sneaking a glance at unadulterated, R-rated material. Then my aunt noticed me and guided me back into the family room where my brother lay sleeping. I knew that she knew I knew I wasn't supposed to be watching Conan, but I also knew that this new sorcery called HBO meant there was a way for a kid like me to see the exceptional. For however much longer it took my parents to pick up me and my brother, I kept crawling back to the perch behind the houseplant to peek at Conan, or else I scuttled back to my brother's side if my aunt or uncle sensed my presence. In the effort, I saw a muscle-bound man having sex with a witch, although it looked to me then like it was two naked people wrestling near a fireplace. There was a group of snake worshippers, a lot of horse riding, and I was picked up before I could learn the ultimate fate of the Sumerian at the movie's end. Soon afterward, while shopping at Alpha Beta, a local grocery store, I persuaded my mom to buy me a mad magazine that featured a satire of Conan. A few weekends later, I also asked for the Cracked magazine with the same general idea. In the same season, I used my meager savings to buy a graphic novel of Conan the Barbarian, copied from the movie and not from any of the stories by Robert E. Howard, which temporarily emptied my appetite for all things Conan-related. Still, I'd never seen Conan the Barbarian all the way through, a matter that was fixed during a sleepover my freshman year in high school. I'd made a new friend, and the promise of plentiful pizza and a movie night drew me in. His parents were lenient with R-rated material, and they'd amassed a large collection of dubbed videotapes. Importantly, they also had a VCR, which was not part of my household until the next year since my parents were slow adopters of new consumer electronics. My friend and I curled up in sleeping bags and started Conan. He'd seen it before and fell asleep quickly, although I remained fascinated right through to the end. In retrospect, I can see that a dubbed copy of a panned-and-scanned videotape isn't the best way to see a movie shot in a bigger-than-cinemascope ratio of 2.39 to 1, nor is the best way to hear Basil Polidorus's score well-served by the mono speakers of a standard television from the middle 1980s. On the other hand, Conan the Barbarian, in whatever form, is a splendid showcase of stunts and practical blood effects that left a strong impression on me with all that spilled viscera. As I've grown older, I've met other people, all white men, who consider Conan the Barbarian a touchstone of Generation X. We can argue over favorite moments of carnage and shiver with the memory of how terrifying the appearance of the giant snake really was, and we always, always overlook the central stupidity of the movie. Conan the Barbarian is about a boy named Conan, Jorge Sanz, who watches the massacre of his family by a snake-worshipping sect led by Thulsa Doom, James Earl Jones. Young Conan is enslaved and forced to push a wheel of pain that kills everyone but him, resulting in adult Conan, Schwarzenegger, a muscle-bound giant. Forced into gladiatorial combat, Conan kills all comers, 
so his owners train him in the martial arts, and the liberal arts too, refining his violent instincts with the pabulum of a Western Civilization survey course. Eventually, he is freed, and he collects a pair of thieves as friends, Sabutai, Gary Lopez, and Valeria, Sandal Bergman. The trio amass some wealth, and Valeria becomes Conan's girlfriend before they enter the service of King Osric, Max von Sydow, whose daughter has joined the cult of Thulsa Doom. Now seeking both revenge and the prize of earning Osric's treasure through returning his daughter, Conan attacks Doom but is captured and put through the Christian ringer, including a ritual beating, crucifixion, and resurrection, courtesy of a goofy wizard, Mako. When Valeria sacrifices herself to save Conan, he kills all the baddies, saves Osric's daughter, Valeri Kinnison, and becomes a king. Any adult will see Conan the Barbarian for the exploitative primer on fascist impulses that it is. I suspect that any preteen will wince over the punching of a camel, the tripping of many horses, and the slashing spray of bloodied bodies that fill out certain sequences with laughable regularity. Seeing Conan again, after all the years between my aunt and uncle's house and the present, I am left with a few brilliant images, like young Conan holding his mother's hand as she is decapitated and her body falls in slow motion off-screen, or the assembled hundreds of Doom's initiates, white-robed and hiking towards a mountain redoubt, or the flat-ironed hair of the several actresses. Then there are the quotably terrible lines of dialogue credited to screenwriters Oliver Stone and John Milius. Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear a lamentation of the women. It's all so bad, bad that it's great. But mixed in with my kitsch-loving nostalgia for all things HBO-related, I also have a deep discomfort as a 21st century social justice warrior type guy in the fact that the villain is black. Not only is James Earl Jones a black man and the voice of Darth Vader, a black-garbed villain from Star Wars, but he plays Thulsa Doom, a shape-shifting black snake man capable of moving fluidly from snake form to man form whose ultimate crime, beyond murdering young Conan's family and village, is stealing a young white woman as his bride. Suffice it to say that snakes are phallic symbols and there is a long tradition of trading on supposed black male sexual prowess as a threat to white society. When Conan the Barbarian begins, we stare at a black screen before the camera pulls back for opening credits over a montage of casting, hammering, and refining a steel sword, we read, That which does not kill us makes us stronger, which is translated from the book Twilight of the Idols, written by Friedrich Nietzsche in 1888. That phrase is now a meme traded across pop cultural artifacts that points to the importance of struggle in constructing a better self. To Nietzsche, and to Stone and Milius, and to Arnold, the one-time Austrian oak of bodybuilding fame, and the focal point of Conan, the line suggests a racial hierarchy that rests on a false notion of the Nietzschean Ubermensch, or Superman, asserting against all historical records of American civilization that a black man is the cause of a white man's struggle and fall and his subsequent rise to greatness. You have come to me, my son. For who now is your father if it is not me? Who gave you the will to live? I am the wellspring from which you flow. When I am gone, you will have never been. Sure, Conan the Barbarian is only a movie. 
But when Conan decapitates Thulsa-Doom, sets fire to his temple, and drives away his followers, we are meant to see justice inside the cartoon logic of the story world, which is another way of expressing deeply felt energies that otherwise lack sanction in polite society. Conan is all-powerful and white, and the actor who plays him, due to his height and obvious physical markers, seems all-powerful and is white, and he is a native German speaker from Austria, just like Adolf Hitler, who once built a political organization through twisting the philosophical underpinnings of Nietzsche and other writers, just like the movie director John Milius. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Boop-boobity-doo!